Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Joining us today is director Karen Cho and Rick Wong, a member of the longtime No See Collective. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Today, we're here to talk about Karen's film, Big Fight in Little Chinatown, which tells the story of how Chinatowns across the globe are disappearing and how communities are fighting back. From New York, Montreal, Vancouver, and right here in Toronto, these communities are fending off developers and gentrification to save their heritage. Uh, Karen, before we get into our conversation, what's the response been like so far with the documentary? Um, well, it's been great. You know, it, it's it's a real special film and we're actually bringing the film back into Chinatown. So we've started this kind of coast to coast tour and we've been playing in different cities. So the response has been amazing. Like to me as a filmmaker, I think the best feedback you can get is when folks who are in the film or in the community, they they tell you, you know, they, they watch the film and they, and they say, yeah, you know, that's our story. Mm-hmm. And, and you've done something well when the community takes the film and they kind of run with it themselves. And that's uh, in, in a way what's happening uh, with these screenings. You know, we're kind of leveraging the screenings in the communities for um, the organizers on the ground to kind of use it for the work that they're doing every day. Speaking of people who are in the film, mm-hmm. here's one of your <laughs> subjects. Rick, how did you get involved in this? Uh, my wife kind of started this project. We went around during COVID when we're at the like kind of the depths of it. Uh, I don't know if you remember that time. You weren't allowed to talk to anybody. You weren't allowed to see your friends and all this kind of stuff. And we went around in the wintertime and, and we're chatting with our friends on their porches. And uh, Chinatown was being hit really hard by COVID at that time. It had anti-masker protests going through and bullying all the seniors and stuff like that, ongoing basis. Uh, one of my Kung Fu students got spit on and things like that. Uh, stores were uh, closing. Uh, a local herbalist was at, was saying, you know, this we might throw in the towel on this. Uh, and meanwhile, developers are coming in and buying up sections of Chinatown uh, for stores that are closing down. They're trying to amalgamate blocks. Uh, they're doing 315 Spadina, which is tearing out a huge, huge area of, of Spadina and building this thing. And my wife was, was, was saying, well, like, uh, Chinatown's more than just the real estate. Chinatown is is the people. So we did this project called Long Time No See, Mogin Honoi, which uh, it was an expression from her mother used to use coming into Chinatown. She'd see an old friend and she'd, it'd be like, you're alive, I'm alive, and we look at each other's faces, right? Like That's long- beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite quite poetic. And at that time, everybody's running around like this, like nobody can see anybody's face. So it's like giving face. So we extended that out to people taking selfies in Chinatown and talking about their emotional attachment to Chinatown. Now, through that, one of my one of the members of our group is Sandy Yap, and Sandy is uh, uh, a member of the group, which is uh, the house that he was born in in Montreal uh, had been bought by a developer who's known in Montreal Chinatown for buying properties and ripping them down and building condos. And this is right. Karen will talk to more about this, but that it's in the film, uh, right in the heart of heart of Chinatown. So Sandy had made a con- connection with Karen. So while we were out postering, Karen came down and started filming us postering as part of the story of what are communities doing to save their community? What are they doing? And, and for us, it was like, we're not just real estate, we're people here. Hey, there's people here, right? You know? <laughs> and, 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 and not just people that are just happen to be here, people that actually have a, a strong emotional attachment to this neighborhood and, and that are willing to put themselves on the line for this, right? Like, like hey, we're willing to stand up and actually do that. And we had um, over 200 posters. That's how I got involved in the project with Karen. Karen came down, filmed, and and uh, just as part of the story of of what are people doing to try to save their community. I love what you said too about it's not just real estate because um, as the film um, further in the documentary, 
there's um, kind of like a sentiment that Chinatowns were a response to the anti-Asian uh, hate. Uh, it, they became havens uh, for people um, from China. And then now, because of the real estate, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like hurting those communities. And first and foremost, it is about the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a, I mean, it's kind of the colonial project to displace less powerful communities if they're sitting on a resource. It's like, well, you don't realize that's a resource. Like, you know, oh, it's a barrel ground? Too bad. Like, you know, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just part of, the, part of the ongoing process that, no, 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 money's the most important, but I, I don't believe that. I think if we want to talk about quality of life or who gets to live in the city and what the city looks like or how do you make a livable city, money isn't the only thing in that equation. You have to think about quality of life. Hmm. Karen, the title, Big Fight Little Chinatown, there's a movie called Big Trouble in Little Chinatown, directed by John Carpenter. Uh, was that kind of an inspiration for you? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was a kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to that film. I mean, besides from that, it's not necessarily the, the same thing, but it's something that sticks. You know, a lot of people call my film Big Trouble or, or Big Fight in Little China. Um, but, it, but it's a good way of kind of getting people who are maybe Googling something else to fall on this film as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a clip from Big Fight in Little China. Uh, here's the clip. This is where you can put a freeway through Vancouver's Chinatown to obliterate it. If you want to get rid of the Chinese, you you train your bullseye, your target, onto Chinatowns. In the face of all the economic pressure due to COVID, due to anti-Chinese racism, developers, they come in, they prey on all these type of vulnerabilities. And if we don't fight back, if we don't organize as a community, that's how we're going to lose everything. Karen, if you can set it up for the history for us a little bit, how did Chinatown come to be in places like Toronto, New York and elsewhere? Well, I mean, everywhere in, in, in the world, actually, like Chinatowns are, are um, you know, they're the result of the Chinese diaspora and, and they're um, neighborhoods that are born out of racism. Um, in China, in Canada, I mean, we're in 2023, we're the 100th year anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, there were lots of immigration laws against the Chinese here in Canada. You know, our, I'm fifth generation Chinese Canadian. Um, my family goes back to the beginnings of when the Chinese came here for the gold rush, for the railway. Um, but there were, you know, we weren't ever wanted as a population. So they put head taxes on us, um, different laws and, and different things that in, in a way corralled the Chinese into one neighborhood or one area, which was often the most undesirable area of the neighborhood or of the city at, at that time. Um, you know, and so Chinatown for us has always been a, a neighborhood of sanctuary and a neighborhood of, you know, finding your own family because we weren't allowed to bring, you know, our wives here. Um, at one point, you know, the idea behind those laws were so the Chinese wouldn't remain, they wouldn't have children, they wouldn't have family. So in a way, Chinatown itself becomes a de facto family for the folks who were here. Like the, they used to be bachelor places. And uh, the family societies that were there at the very beginnings as mutual aid societies in an era where we couldn't have bank bank accounts or medical services um, continue to be in the Chinatowns today. Rick, you know, we were talking before in the green room. I grew up in Chinatown, but I wouldn't be able to tell you that I learned this history in school. I'm pretty sure, you know, it was not something that we were taught growing up. So I'm wondering how aware do you think people are about this history of like the Chinese head tax and, and Chinese exclusion act, which you just mentioned is the 100th anniversary this year. How aware are people of this history? I think that section of Canadian history is completely overlooked. I mean, I never learned any of that when I was in school. 
I actually did first year history at Western. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> so I actually, um, all of that stuff you have to dig for. We did this project on uh, out in Markham right now, working, connecting the uh, suburban Chinatown to downtown Chinatown and the making of the connections. And even uh, most recent Chinese immigrants who come here, and when I talk to them about the Exclusion Act, and I talk to them about this being a commemoration for that, a lot of them have no idea of the history of, of racism in the country or the history of Im immigration law or the history of First Nations on the land. I mean, it's it's coincidental to that only, only by researching the um, 1923 and the Chinese Exclusion Act as I found out that, you know, the, the area in Markham, uh, the Williams Treaties were all signed in, in 1923, the exact same year. The treaties were so slanted away from the First Nations, they had to do an apology in 2000. Uh, 18 uh, and a 1.1 billion dollar settlement uh, uh, with that. Um, all of those things I found out all on my own, uh, reading through stuff. Uh, it yeah, the history of all of that is is completely uh, missing out of uh, out of that. What have Chinatowns become now with everything that's happening happening around gentrification? Well, I mean, Chinatown continues to be a, a place for marginalized communities, you know, be they Chinese, Canadian, low income. There's lots of folks with, you know, um, experiencing houselessness or, or with uh, mental health or drug addiction issues also in the Chinatown. So they continue to be places where a bunch of marginalized communities coexist together. Um, there's lots of gentrification pressures in all of the historic urban Chinatowns because they're located in the downtown core of so many cities. So there's a history of, you know, expropriation, um, urban renewal and development that happened over decades that expropriated a lot of land in Chinatown that kind of tore the communities apart. There's the modern day gentrification pressures, big box store kind of pressures, luxury condo pressures. But then of course, COVID happened as well. And COVID came down um, especially brutally in Chinatowns. You know, the neighborhoods were stigmatized, the, the banquet style eating that happens in Chinatown, the gathering places, all of those things couldn't happen during COVID. So the neighborhood was essentially abandoned um, emptied and you know it was also a, it created a perfect storm for developers to kind of come in and scoop up properties uh, assemble land and kind of clear out what was there and you know Rick talking about the you know the treaties of the past and this idea of land also you know th there's this thing that happens like terrace nullis you know like like you arrive in a place there's nothing there um, so for us, you know, that, that obviously that's the colonial story, like arriving here on this land we're calling Canada, as if there's nothing there. But today in Chinatown, like developers arrive in our neighborhoods and pretend there's nothing there. Like like in our Montreal, and it's in the, the film, there's a moment where a reporter asks, well, these luxury condos, they're not marketing it as if they're in Chinatown? And they're not, you know. There's you, that surprise, like that's happening in Chinatown. And literally, like the people on the third floor of these quote unquote luxury condos can hang their laundry on the Chinatown gate. It's that close, right? Oh. And they're pretending they're in a neighborhood that's a quote unquote luxury neighborhood in the heart of downtown, right near the, the old port in the case of Montreal. Well, that that neighborhood exists. It's called Chinatown. And it's been there for over 150 years. And so have the people that are in that neighborhood. In a lot of those, the promotion of those new condo complex, it doesn't mention it's Chinatown? No. <laughs> There's not one word, okay, on, on Chinatown. And that's very worrisome. We're worried about being wiped out. So, you know, uh, people think about condos, how they can revitalize an, a new neighborhood, bring in uh, more density, bring in more vibrancy. 
Yes, but if you're marketing it as a place that exists in some fictitious neighborhood in downtown and you forget that there's amazing culture and food and people there already and the people who are buying these new condos are marketed some other things, do you think they're going to frequent Chinatown and be part of the community and and put down roots in the community? So it, it was an active erasure of the story of our and the narrative and the existence of our neighborhood in the city in the present as well. It's interesting to me that they would not want to market it as, as Chinatown. Because I mean, like I said, I grew up downtown Chinatown. I was proud of it. Like I love living in Chinatown. It's just like there's everything that you could possibly need there. You would think that that would actually be an attractive uh, thing to advertise to people. But I guess I wonder why these developers would look at it differently. Well, I think, I mean, it goes back to some of the old stigmas that exist, even with my father's generation of the neighborhood. And, you know, Mike Tan in the film kind of talks about this idea of, you know, there's a certain era of folks where Chinatown was the ghetto. You know, it had this kind of stigma of being a dirty place, being an unsafe place. And, you know, you want to go out to the suburbs where everything is shiny and beautiful. So I think a lot of the luxury condos are maybe buying into that idea. It's just shiny new people, shiny new buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you're right, like wh- where are the places in, when we visit a city that we want to visit the most? Like here in Toronto, you know, uh, Chinatown, Kensington Market, these places that are human scale, that that are walkable, that are, that are affordable, but that also have that kind of um, human cachet and that vibrant life on the street. You know, it's not a strip mall in the suburbs. It's not a mall, you know, a, a, or or a bunch of like chain kind of uh, stores that, that you can find anywhere. You know, these these are entrepreneurs, like mom and shop pops. They, they have a character, they, they have a meaning and, and there's a kind of layered memory in, in the space as well. And those are the neighborhoods in the every city that we remember we want to visit most and actually have the most authenticity because of it. So much history is there, but um, you mentioned that COVID was very hard on Chinatowns because people couldn't go to the restaurants. There's a lot of businesses there, and now um, developers are able to come in into position and offer <laughs> uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to building owners in Chinatown. One architect was even quoted in the film as saying uh, he had never actually been to Chinatown in the city, so he didn't really see a use for it. Uh, Rick, how much are developers to blame in pushing these communities out? I think the idea that that in the in order to house more people in Toronto, we need to destroy neighborhoods and rebuild them, right? I think there's this ongoing thing that we need more housing. So that's, I agree, we need more housing. I'm not disagreeing with that. But you've got an existing neighborhood, which, uh, which is not it's not a low-density neighborhood already. It's actually one of the higher-density neighborhoods in downtown Toronto. So if you're going to take that and you're going to destroy it, what you replace it with is uh, buildings at a higher income level. So then what happens to all those people that are there now, right, and all their relationships and all the rooming houses and all that sort of stuff? You want to house them better, but at the same time, if you don't make accommodation for that, they're going to be homeless, right? Like, or you're going to try to export them all out to the fringe suburbs where you end up having to buy a car and all this sort of stuff. So I'm not You lose community too, right? And, and then the government has to step in to replace that community. But it's, it, it's always, well, that's the first thing that gets cut on a cutback. And it can't be done as well. Like seniors is a really important issue. Seniors were the hardest hit group during COVID. 
But Chinatown is hugely supportive to seniors. Uh, if you talk to seniors, th th they all want to get into the, the very few uh, housing projects that house seniors in, in, in downtown. Their friends are there. They can walk to stores. There's social events that are all, all around. If you take these seniors and you pop them into a, a, uh, a building out in Mississauga, uh, they're isolated. They can't go for a walk and get groceries and all these kind of things. They lose all those social connections. And then you have to, the expensive thing is, well, you know, you could get a government agency to come in and take them and drive them around. Like, it just doesn't work that way. The neighborhood is actually a functioning, living, breathing thing, which is, which is going on. So I'm not opposed to development, but I think they really have to take that into consideration. That's a super important part of it. And, and, and I think, uh, one of the problems with development is that in order to make a project feasible, the larger the project, the more efficient. I mean, that's the same with big box stores. It's the same. It's the reason we only have five grocery chains and, and, and three telecom carriers and blah, blah, blah. This amalgamation where bigger is always better. Well, bigger isn't always better. And, and for me, one of the nice things about the neighborhood is the small lot sizes. I mean, Kensington Market, for example, uh, by having all that diversity of smaller units, it allows a whole bunch of different ideas to try, right? There's entry points where people can go into. And I, I, I just think that they're, they're squeezing all that out and turning it into kind of a monoculture. And mm -hmm. I think that's the problem with the development model. There's another issue um, that your film presents, which is this younger generation that may not want to take over their mom and dad's restaurant. It's, you know, it's hard work. Obviously, COVID had a huge like, effect on these businesses lasting. Um, how is that affecting these communities? Well, I mean, for sure, like um, Chinatown is built on immigrant labor. And when you're immigrants who work really hard, like the Chinatown kind of, you know, restaurant model, it, it's 16 hours a day, you know, 60, uh, 365 days a year. Um, it, it, it's hard work. And, and a lot of folks don't want their next generation to be doing that. But, you know, it, just because a second generation is there in the business doesn't mean the business also has to be kind of locked in time, right? It, it can evolve. It, 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 you can breathe new life into old things. So, you know, Mei Lum, who's in the, in the film, I, I specifically look for intergenerational businesses in the film because they had such a strong um, place in, in the history of the neighborhood, but also in the future. And these kind of younger generations in the family that were taking over the business were breathing new life and new ideas into those concepts, you know. So Mei Lum out of uh, Wing on Woe in New York, you know, Wing on Woe is literally the oldest storefront in New York's Chinatown. It's from 1890. Wow. They sell porcelain today. Back in the day, it was like a general store post office for, um, you know, Chinese uh, workers um, who couldn't even, who weren't literate. And they had a letter writer to write home to the, the family village. And then it's evolved into a porcelain store. And today, May, out of the basement of that shop, also runs this amazing thing called the Wow Project. And that's, uh, she, she has, it's like an artist residency for young Asian American artists and also artists from the LGBTQ plus community to come and to create culture in the neighborhood, be a part of that neighborhood and part of the cultural production of that neighborhood. So in a way, the oldest thing in the neighborhood is actually bringing the most vibrant and new life and also bringing new community and new sense and uh, new groups of people together in the Chinatown. Likewise, you know, William Yu in Kamwai uh, Dim Sum in Vancouver, um, you know, his family could easily take their frozen dim sum business, move out to Richmond, Surrey, move out to the suburbs and, you know, have a multi-million dollar, you know, frozen dim sum empire. Mm -hmm. But William and his family, is, are they're committed to that neighborhood and it's not an easy neighborhood to, to do business in. There are a lot of marginalized folks in that neighborhood, 
but their business model is community facing business. So instead of making a business model where we're, you know, we're looking for the tourists, we're looking for the rich people, we're going to charge $50 plates for Asian fusion food. They are making affordable food in a neighborhood that really needs affordable food, be it for the Chinese seniors, but also for the folks of the downtown's east side who are also marginalized. And, you know, and William is very adamant about keeping the prices low um, in their store because it's that dignity to be able to pay $2 to feed yourself and the dignity to be able to pay that from your own pocket that he's giving to the folks in that neighborhood. And also how Kamui Dim Sum beyond a family restaurant is actually an anchor for the entire neighborhood. It brings stability to all the people's lives, all these folks who are, play, who are facing daily displacement and, and threats to their everyday livelihood in that neighborhood. Having businesses like this having a vision not just for their own bottom line, but for the actual neighborhood ecosystem around them is what, you know, what Chinatown needs. And giving, you know, the store, the small storefronts like Rick uh, spoke about, it, it gives new entrepreneurship ideas. You know, you don't need a crazy big box store piece of real estate to run a business in Chinatown. You can you can start a small pop-up. You can do small things. We could give tax incentives to, to legacy businesses to continue to innovate, to do all those things. You know, now in the city, you can buy bubble tea anywhere. You, you can buy Asian groceries anywhere. But where can you have these foods that have been made out of, out of these restaurants and these places for decades and generations? That to me is why I want to visit as a tourist the Montreal Chinatown or whatever Chinatown it is, it's to get that local flavor of the local businesses and the people who are part of the community and continue to be so. You mentioned, um, we were talking about second generation and you mentioned William and uh, he was, uh, he studied opera and uh, there's a great line in the documentary where he says that, you know, I love what I was doing, but I love my family more. Can you tell us more about William and um, why he made the decision to take on the family business? Well, I mean, William is amazing. You know, he could, I mean, he, we, we hear him sing in, in the film. Um, it was during COVID, he had a mask on and the editor and I were having problems because it looked like we put a fake soundtrack <laughs> on, on him singing. It was so beautiful and amazing. Uh, so we'll have uh, William and we'll use his voice as a kind of an inspiration and a guide for us in the way we sing to, to make those vowels so full and rich and tall. Just to run it right through from the top. Shall we stand, please? But when William chooses ultimately his family over his opera career, by family, he's not just referring to his father and his mother and his sister. He's actually referring to all of Chinatown because he grew up in that neighborhood and he saw or he has witnessed and, and seen the changes happening around him. And he's seen his neighbors move away and he's seen, you know, the, the, the grandparents, you know, go out to the suburbs and all of that. And during COVID and, and prior to that, you know, in the newspaper, there's been stories about Kamwai and people have come back. And William, on the very, very first day I met him, he... he told me this amazing story of people coming back and saying, you know, remember me, I used to be your neighbor. <laughs> so it's so amazing, like to be able to, it, it's kind of like what long time no see is trying to do to create the community back and, and tie people back to the neighborhood, like people like William and their family by deciding to 
put their their roots even deeper into that neighborhood um that's where you create these kind of moments where people can come back and 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 kind of rethink and reimagine Chinatown in a different way or one solution that's discussed in the doc is uh you know designating Chinatowns as uh cultural heritage sites what can you say about that like are, what do you think of, are you open to those uh, ideas like what, what do you think of that as a as a concept Conce- conceptually i think it's a great idea uh, but it's like or is it too little too late? I mean, mm-hmm. is, is the other part of I, what, what I'm thinking about. I mean, like, uh, there it wasn't in place. It should have been in place when they did the uh, the hearings for 315 Spadina. I mean, that's such a major project. And it's like, you haven't thought of this till now. I mean, one of the problems with uh, the Chinatown thing is defining the borders of what what is Chinatown versus what is Kensington? You know, like, it's, it's a, one big organism. It's all connected, right? So uh, to look at one... Uh, separate from the other? No, it doesn't really work that way. That neighborhood is like a living, breathing thing, right? And and uh, but that a l- little bit of a light bulb went off to say that oh, there's something here. Maybe we better do something about it. Well, about time. But I, I do worry that it's too little, too late. And then the other aspect about it is like like uh, Chinatown in Toronto because it was moved. I mean, it was in that that clip. It showed the area of the original Chinatown, which was around Nathan Phillips Square, where most of the original uh, Chinatown was bulldozed, displaced. Is it called a ward or something? It was, it was the ward. The ward was, and, you know, I always think a lot of times Chinatowns are where, near the bus station, right? It's kind of like the Harbor District or something, like it's where all the sleazy stuff happens and all that. <laughs> and, of course, you know, the, so they, they, they tore that all down, moved everybody over to Spadina. So a lot of the buildings date from then, from 60s, 70s buildings and all this. It doesn't have the architectural history. So, that, you know, there's a dilemma. That, like, like, what do you save with that, right? How do you do that? It's a difficult kind of balance, but when you look at culture, it's called a intangible cultural asset. I've been thinking about the words for that because it is intangible, but it's a cultural asset. It's something which is super valuable, but you know, you, you have to, how do you define that? There used to be all these big banquet halls and one by one they've all closed. There's like Dim Sum King has left and then Sky Dragon's left, but all these other ones, they're all gone now. Uh, big grocery stores, there used to be like half a dozen of them. And now it's like two, uh, two and a half, like mm. Dap Fong is still there, but there's certain key businesses that they need to be supporting and they need to be supporting the the uh, and giving leadership to the family associations the family associations a lot of them own their property as well as will own some other properties and a lot of times they're renting out to people at below market rents and they're they're they're, they are they have their tendrils out to try to stabilize the community do they get pressure though to sell because oh all the time yeah both both from without and from within. A lot of times when you talked about the generational thing, sometimes they're trying to pass it down to the next generation and the next generation has moved on. They're not in downtown Toronto anymore. They might be out in Markham. They might've moved out uh, out of town altogether. And they say, oh, just sell. Um, but, but on the other side of that with the generational question, uh, all of the ventures that we've done have a huge fan base or people from younger people that are trying to come back in from Markham and come back in from all over the place to try to save Chinatowns. Uh, they, there's really an interest of the younger generation uh, within what, whatever we're doing within this film, within uh, uh, Ventures to Save Chinatown, with the art projects we're doing. And that's what gives me real hope. I mean, if it was just a bunch of old people saying, oh, let's just save this thing. <laughs> but, uh, but like, no, no, the, the, uh, the, the gas in the tank is these young people and they're, they're like super activist. Uh, 
You you described um, Chinatown as a living, breathing thing, and you said that there's an emotional attraction to Chinatown, but yet in the film, um, it's still a line that was kind of shocking to me with the developer who was like, what's the use of Chinatown? Uh, I've never been there. So what do you think needs to be done to kind of bring, uh, to shorten the gap between those two sentiments? Well, I think, you know, that that is kind of, in a way, that gap between folks who have been in Chinatown so, so long and have family roots there and understand the vibrancy and the community that exists beyond. And it was important for me in the film to go beyond the kind of tourist facade or the storefront in these places, get into the back kitchen, the second store, see see the family association, see, you know, the dragon dances and lion dances and all of this kind of culture and community that happens in these places. But linking that to newer generations and folks living in the suburbs. I mean, I think Rick should talk about this new project that the longtime No See Collective that we see in the film. They have a new project where Chinatown is literally reaching out to the suburbs to kind of create those links. Yeah, tell us about it. Okay, so the byline, the by, <laughs> the, 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 I gave you the card on that. The little byline of that is what happens when Chinatown goes to the suburbs. And um, so we had done two projects downtown uh, uh, Chinatown won the first long-time no-see project, Mogan Honoi, just like selfies and all that. Then we did one specifically looking at seniors because seniors are the backbone of the community and, and they're, they're really overlooked. And then uh, we had all these beautiful photographs left over and my wife had done a show out at the Varley Gallery out in Markham uh, 2010, so she knew some people out there. She said, do you want to display these photos? And they said, no, how about you do a project uh, working with the Markham community? And so we, we're, we're a downtown group. We, we're not from that community. We know some people in that community and things like that. But we started extending our, our relationship from the downtown Chinatown out to that Chinatown, uh, out to those people, and looking at what they're doing, creating culture, creating community out there, and then connecting them to what we're doing downtown. So it's, it's been a, a, a dialogue that way and, and a huge learning curve both from both sections. Uh, the response we get from people uh, out there, like a lot of new Chinese immigrants who come here, they have no idea about the history of the head tax, the history of, of uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, how all that stuff went down. They have no, no idea. They have no idea about where um, that the original Chinatown was at Nathan Phillips Square and got moved over to Spadina. Like a lot of them, it's just, and they have no idea about, uh, they come into some of the, the, uh, the family associations, some of the older spaces, and they're like, oh, I didn't know this was here. And, and it creates that uh, I mean, it's said that in order to have a future, I mean, this comes from Afrofuturism, right? In order to understand where you are in the future, you need to know where you are in the present. In order to know where you are in the present, you need some understanding of your past. And so for a lot of people, like you were talking about, about history, if you don't know your history, then it's really hard to project yourself in the future because it's all it's just all made up. It's all based on sand. But to actually understand your roots long term, uh, it gives you such a, a, a better understanding of where you are a better understanding of, of where you are, especially in Canadian society. Because, uh, yeah, you, you, you really need that. You really need to know where you came from and take a look at what your ancestors did and how hard they struggled and where we're at now and understand the context of, of how you're seen as a Chinese-Canadian nowadays. Let's wrap up our conversation. I mean, we could go on for another half hour, seriously. Um, but I wonder if you could both just say, what, give some thoughts on what you think the future holds for Chinatowns across North America. Karen, why don't you start? Well, I mean, I think for me, like, it was really important in the film to see this kind of intersection between racism and urban planning and to see Chinatowns as these kind of microcosms of what is possible 
in the city. You know, they, they are the quintessential kind of Jane Jacobs neighborhoods, the 15-minute neighborhood, they're human scale, walkable, affordable, all these kind of things that all urban planners would, would love to have in, in the communities that they're building. So I think what's important for me and what I hope for the future is, is Chinatown, all the amazing things of the history of Chinatown and the vibrancy that's created and the, and the culture and, the, and the, the connections that are built out of that neighborhood are things that can inform the future. It's like, how do we grow those things stronger so they exist into the future in the cities that we're building instead of kind of wiping everything out with these kind of soulless luxury condo buildings or, 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 you know, big box stores. It's like, let's keep the community and, and then in and of itself, the ecosystem of the neighborhood actually survives. Mm. What about you, Rick? I'm, I'm hopeful in that. Uh, I mean, there's, it's two sides, right? Or like, it's like, what to say? You got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah. it's, a, it's the same thing on the ones, on the one side, sometimes it looks, if you look at the hole at 315 Spadina, it's like, oh my God, look what they've done. <laughs> um, but at the same time, that, as I said, the younger, the, the response with younger activists that are working at stuff, that Karen has done a film like this. Each one is a tool in the toolbox, right? And so you see this thing as a, as a long-term game. Uh, uh, Somebody was from the from the Jewish community was saying that 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 yeah we left uh, Kensington Market and it's gone now. There's no more delis in Kensington Market. Like our history's erasing. And then that you still have something there. You're so lucky. You're so lucky. You at least have something left to save. You know. Mm-hmm. So last one. Last question. One last question. What's your yeah. shirt say? Oh. So you told us not to wear black. So <laughs> <laughs> so this is my East Chinatown T-shirt. A friend of mine gave to me. There's Wong's ice cream right in the center. Excellent. <laughs> and, awesome. So that's excellent. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Go go go, go eat in Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> go Done. Right <laughs> Twist my arm, or don't you? <laughs> And that's the podcast. Be sure to check out Big Fight in Little Chinatown on TVO Doc's YouTube channel. Make sure you give our show a rating on Apple Podcasts and give a watch of our video podcast version on YouTube. Thanks to our producer, Matthew O'Mara, and podcast manager, Sharayer Tajvidi. Also, thanks to our amazing studio crew who made our video podcast pod- possible and to our support cre- coordinators, Carla Luqueta and Jonathan Hallowell. We'll catch you at the next screening.